You folks who are, are guests with us uh, today, we have been studying, as you can see on the study sheet that you have in your hand, we've been studying the book of Revelation, and we've been studying this for quite some time. It's, a, it's a, an intriguing, intriguing book, and we've spent some incredibly intriguing weeks going through it. Now, where we are right now is in Revelation chapter 14. It happens to be about a group of people that is called the 144,000 a very intriguing group of people and we've talked about all the intriguing stuff about them and what it's done is it's led us into a very practical study of things that we can learn from this group of people and you know what what I've found about practical things is they're not near as intriguing you know what I'm saying they hurt a lot and we're in a section that hurts a whole lot because it what is true of this group that we find in Revelation chapter 14 in the first five verses what God says is true of that group of people is very untrue of those of us that are living in the last days just prior to the return of Christ now for you folks who are guests a word that you need to get into your vocabulary this morning even if it's in your short-term memory is the word Laodicean in Revelation 2 and 3, our Lord writes seven letters to seven churches that really existed in Asia Minor around 95 A.D. or so when uh, John wrote the Revelation. However, put into the context of the whole of the book of Revelation, those seven letters represent seven periods of church history. We are presently living in the seventh and final period of church history referred to as the Laodicean church period. So we will refer to ourselves this morning as we go through this as Laodiceans. But the, the long and short of it, and we don't have time to work through everything that we have seen thus far in this thing because we've been in this for 11 weeks, and every time that I try to review and try to figure out what to leave out, I, don't, I can't find too many things to leave out. So today we're going we're gonna to pretty much scrap the review. We've been talking about this thing of following the Lamb. Would you look in, in chapter 14, in the middle of verse 4? <clears throat> One of the characteristics of this group that makes it very visibly evident that they are connected and identified with the Lamb and His Father is the, what it says in the middle of verse 4. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. And I, I came on that and it, it, it intrigued me. I mean, it just blew me out. That here is a group of people so identified with the Lamb that no matter where the Lamb goes, whithersoever he goeth, they're there. Now, as most of you probably realize, the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb is a theme that runs, really, throughout the entire Bible. And I'm telling you, what God does with this theme of the Lamb, to me, is just one of those things that just makes me almost chuckle inside that God just sometimes drops these little ditties in the book that are just incredible I mean you just step back from it and go wow the mind of God you know one of the things I'm looking forward to uh, about heaven is just letting the Lord show us all the stuff we missed in this thing you know I mean we, we think we've learned a lot of stuff around here in the last few years and we've seen some some pretty wild things have, have caused us, have they not, to just kind of step back and go, this thing is unbelievable. And I'm just telling you, I'm sure that this thing is full and running over with those things 
And I, uh, part of the heaven is just going to be, I mean, it's going to be recreation, man. He's gonna, let, let me show you this. <laughs> Y'all probably never did see this. And, and, and we're going to have a great time. But one of the things that is just so incredible about this, this theme of the Lamb that runs through the Bible is that as you begin to take all of the references that you find in the Bible that have to do with the Lamb, and there's a lot of them, and I went through all of them this week, but what you find is that the Bible makes four direct statements concerning the Lamb. Now, there's lots of references, lots of times that a Lamb is mentioned, but what you find is that there's four times where there's a direct statement made concerning a Lamb. And if you just take those statements, what is just wild is that what God does through those four statements is he summarizes for you, through those four simple little statements, he summarizes the entire Bible. Let me, let me show you what I mean. Now, you see where we are on your sheet here? We're going to roll this morning. We've got to, okay? The, the first statement concerning a lamb in the Bible, and this is also the first mention of a lamb in the Bible, it actually comes in the form of a question, and it was a question that was asked by Isaac in Genesis 22-7 as he and his father walked up the mountain of sacrifice. And the reason that the question that Isaac asked is so significant is that it's a question that every single person who has ever been born, is. this is a question that every person needs to come to the place in their life that they ask. The question that Isaac asked is, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And then in the, the very next verse, Isaac's father Abraham answers the question. And he answers the question with a statement that has gone down, folks, is one of the most beautiful and significant prophecies in the entire Bible. Abraham answered the question in Genesis 22, 8, and, and listen, listen to how he answered it. God will provide himself a lamb. Now, now make sure you get it the way that God put it out there. He didn't say God will provide a lamb for himself he said God will provide, say it, himself a lamb. And check it out. As early as Genesis 22, God had already made it very, very clear that a lamb would need to be offered as a sacrifice for sin. And by Genesis 22, he had already made it abundantly clear that he himself would become that lamb. And then one day, several thousand years later, John the Baptist looked up from what he was doing one day, and he made the third statement in the Bible concerning the Lamb. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Check it out. John looked up, and he saw the fulfillment of Abraham's prophecy. He looked up and saw God in a human body in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he understood who he was when he looked at him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, and listen to the rest of it, which taketh away the sin of the world. And he clearly identifies the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb, the Lamb of God that would be offered as the atoning sacrifice for the sin of of every person in the world. So Isaac asks, where is the lamb? Abraham answers, God will provide himself a lamb. And John the Baptist identifies him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, the lamb of God. And then I love this. In Revelation chapter 5, in verse 12, 
John the Beloved here in Revelation 5.12 records the fourth direct statement in the Bible concerning the Lamb. And what John records is the response of every angel in heaven and every man and woman in the entire earth to the sacrifice that was made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And what John says is that every creature will respond with the only res response imaginable. And you know what it is? Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, he says, to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I'm telling you folks, listen now, the message of the Bible doesn't get any simpler than that. Here it is. A lamb was needed as a sacrifice for man's sin. God said he'd become that lamb. He did so in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ as he laid down his life on the cross as the Lamb of God. And listen, for all eternity, he alone will be worthy of all praise and all worship and all adoration. And you see this God just, I mean, I don't know what that does for you. I got goosebumps right now and I knew what I was going to be saying, man. It just freaks me out that God takes and summarizes the whole book with those four little statements concerning a lamb. And then God just drops another one of those head-scratching kind of deals in the, the book of Exodus, chapter 12. Turn there if you would. This is a whole lot better than a review, isn't it? Don't say amen to that. We need those reviews, y'all. That's how we learn the book. Repetition, man. <clears throat> Tom, I'm glad you're back. Good hearty amen right there. It was cool. Exodus chapter 12, and here what God does is God gives us three simple little statements concerning a lamb here. But what these statements are in Exodus chapter 12, what they do is they summarize for us the need of every person in the world. And these statements come in a passage where God is explaining the Passover lamb. And of course, the, the, the Passover if you don't already know this, I think most of you do, the Passover is one of the most significant events in, in the entire Old Testament. Most of you are familiar with it, but the way that it shakes down is this. Very simply, God's people, the Jews, were slaves in Egypt. And in the Bible, Egypt is always and very consistently a picture of sin and the world. Okay? So here were God's people, slaves in Egypt... And God's plan was to redeem them out of their bondage through the death of the firstborn. And you remember that there were nine plagues that had come along. And with each one of them, uh, Pharaoh said, yeah, I'll let the people go. And then the plague would come. And after it was over, he'd say, no, nah, I ain't going to do that. God's plan was to deliver the people out of their bondage through the death of the firstborn. The only problem was all of God's people were right there in the midst of Egypt themselves and under the, the curse of the death of the firstborn themselves. And so God told them that in order for them to escape the judgment of the death of the firstborn so that they could be delivered out of their bondage, what God told them is that they would have to apply the blood of a lamb. And, and look here in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. The Lord says, 
Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. Now, to understand that, just go back up to verse 7. The, the blood of the lamb that he's talking about here, you see in verse 7, they were to take the blood of the Passover lamb and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper uh, door post of, of the houses. Okay, that's what he's talking about back down in verse 13. He says, And the blood, verse 13, shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where we get the Passover. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And boy, I'm telling you, God, in this passage, we don't have time to go through it. I mean, we could. We could take the rest of the time. Because in the picture that God's painting here in Exodus chapter 12, I'm telling you, He painted a masterpiece. I mean, the detail that's going on here of the picture of this Passover lamb is just absolutely incredible. But the real point of the thing is this, okay, listen to it. Just like the Jews were physically in bondage in Egypt, every single one of us were spiritually in the bondage of our sin and in bondage to this world. And we were under the hand of God's judgment. The penalty being what? Death. And our only hope to be rescued out of our bondage, our only hope to be rescued from God's judgment is to apply the blood of the Lamb. Okay, the, the picture is real simple. Most people miss it, but it, it's real simple. But watch how God lays out the progression here in Exodus chapter 12. Look at verse 3. He says, Speak unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb. Verse 4, and if the household be too little for the lamb, verse 5, your lamb. Check it out. A lamb, the lamb, your lamb. And the whole message of the Bible, listen, concerning your need this morning, the whole message of the Bible can be summarized in those three little statements about the lamb. Check it out. God says, you better have a lamb. But not just any lamb is going to do. It must be, what? The lamb. But the lamb must become your lamb. His blood has been spilled on your behalf. But that blood must be personally applied to you. And then when you come to the New Testament, check this out. Luke chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David. It's still on the front sheet. Luke chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior. John 4 and verse 42 says, We know that this indeed is Christ the Savior of the world. And Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, My spirit hath rejoiced in God. Speaking of Christ in the passage, and listen to it. My 
Savior. Check it out. You need a Savior. But with the sin problem that we have, not just any Savior will do. It must be the Savior. But as long as He's just the Savior, I'll die in my sins. The Savior must become my Savior. And you see that happens for you? According to Exodus chapter 12 and what we see all throughout the New Testament, it happens for you the moment the blood of the Lamb of God is applied to your sin when you receive what Christ did for you when he died for your sins on the cross as payment in full for your sin. And what happens, bam, is the blood is applied to you and the Lamb becomes your Lamb. The Savior becomes my Savior, becomes your Savior. So God's got some, some real neat stuff when it comes to this thing of, of, of the Lamb. But now go back to Revelation chapter 14. And the, I just wanted to kind of show you this, this, this theme and what God does with this thing of, of the Lamb. I was setting you up, really. Because what you, what you see here, I, I'm cruising along this week, and I, I, just like every week, coming back at it and saying, okay, God, what do you want for this week as we go to your word? And I'm looking, look at the middle of verse 4 again. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever... He goeth. Now, we, we've, again, we've been talking about this, this little phrase here. We've been talking about it for weeks on end now. But as I just stepped back this week and I looked at verse 14 again, I began to see that the Lord is really actually teaching us a whole lot of incredible stuff about what it means to follow just through the particular word that's used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ here. Look at the middle of verse 14 again. It says, they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And you see, as I began to meditate on that, I thought to myself, you know, this would really make a whole lot more sense. Now think about it. It would make a whole lot more sense if, if it said they follow the shepherd whithersoever he goeth. Because you see, the Bible says that before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, that just like sheep are prone to do, we had gone astray. Isaiah 53 and verse 6 says that every single one of us had gone astray and that every single one of us had chosen our own way. And again, like sheep are prone to do, not only had we gone astray, but the Bible says that we had been scattered. We had been scattered from the fold. And like sheep are prone to become, not only had we gone astray and been scattered, but we were lost. And so get the picture here. According to what the Bible says, here was our condition. We had all gone astray because we had all chosen our own way. Sin and self had scattered us away from the fold. And we were wandering aimlessly through the course of this world, cold and hungry and thirsty and tired and lost. And we had absolutely no idea what to do about our condition. We didn't know where to turn. We didn't know where to go. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 9 in verse 36 that when the Lord Jesus Christ came and He looked upon us, how does the Bible say that He saw us? He saw us as sheep having... No shepherd. And check it out. Seeing us in that condition. You know what he determined to do? He determined to become our shepherd. 
But in order to become our shepherd, it would necessitate something. In order to become our shepherd, it would necessitate him becoming, you know what I'm about to say? A lamb. The Lamb of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever really put that thing together or not, but uh, what God says is that he is the shepherd who is a lamb. I mean, it'd be like saying it's the, the driver who is a car, you know? Uh, he's the lamb who is a, a shepherd. And check it out, the very thing that makes him our shepherd is the very fact that he became the lamb. And because he, he did, he not only became our shepherd, but John 10, 11 says that he is the good shepherd. And the verse tells you why he's the good shepherd. It says, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And the passage goes on to explain that he's also the good shepherd because he knows the sheep and he allows them to know him. And he walks with them and he talks with them and they know his voice beautiful picture of of a good shepherd but he's not just a good shepherd hebrews 13 20 and 21 says that he's the great shepherd he's the great shepherd who can take his sheep it says and by his blood can make us perfect in every good work to do his will and work in us that which is well pleasing in his sight and listen if you understand just what your condition was when you were without a shepherd you know very well why that makes him such a, a great shepherd. But he's not just a shepherd. He's not just the good shepherd. He's not just the great shepherd. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 4 says he's the chief shepherd. He, he's the shepherd above all shepherds. You know why? Because he's God. And only God could have understood that the helplessness and the hopelessness of our condition in the first place and only God, understanding our condition, would care. And caring, only God could do anything about it. And, and what the most amazing thing about it is that he did. You see, that's why he's the chief shepherd. That's why he's the shepherd above all shepherds. But again, to be our good, great chief shepherd it necessitated him becoming a lamb and according to Philippians chapter 2 and why don't you just go back there if you would according to Philippians chapter 2 you, you know what Jesus had to do y'all to become the lamb of God you know what he had to do he had to deny himself Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 8 says that the Lord Jesus Christ was God and he had been God throughout all of eternity past there's never been a time when Jesus Christ was not, not God there's never been a time when Jesus Christ did not exist he has always been God and he's always been equal to the Father what Philippians 2 says here is he set aside the glory that had always been his and he made himself 
check this out now in light of who he is and don't don't just he made himself of no reputation I mean listen here he is he's the king of kings and what he says here in Philippians chapter 2 is he became a servant and here he is the holy eternal omnipotent God and he became a man and, and listen that would have been that would have been humbling enough but he didn't just become a man he humbled himself even more and you know what he did he died but Philippians 2 8 says he didn't just die he died on the cross listen the most excruciating kind of death not to mention the most humiliating kind of death now listen in light of that do you understand any better what we've been trying to look at every single week in this room we've gone to mark chapter 8 and verse 34 where Jesus says whosoever will come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me listen he's not asking you as, as one of his sheep or as one of his lambs he's not asking you to do anything that he himself was not willing to do and not just willing to do but that he himself did in becoming the Lamb of God y'all he denied himself and he came to this earth and he took up not his cross he took up your cross please don't jack around while I'm, I'm on this he took up your cross he took up my cross he took up the cross that we deserved and listen he followed every single step of the way the will of the Father and as the Lamb of God he laid down his life for us and now listen now his call on our lives is to do in his power what he did first John chapter 2 and verse 6 says that if we abide in him we ought to walk how even as he walked you see that's why Jesus invitation to you and me was follow me and it begins this life of following where we're born into the family of God and we become one of his sheep we become one of his lambs we become one of his followers it begins by denying yourself and, and as I said earlier there, there are really some incredible things that we learn about 
following in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 4, just from the fact that the 144,000 followed not just the Lord, not just they followed the shepherd, we can learn a whole lot by the what God was trying to get us to see when it says they followed the Lamb. And I want to take the rest of the time this morning to talk about five biblical characteristics of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb that really summarize what biblical following is all about. And with each one of these, as we come through these characteristics, we're going to contrast it with how we, as his sheep or his lambs, how we follow him. And the first characteristic I want you to see about the Lord Jesus Christ is just the fact that he was the simple lamb. The simple lamb. Now listen, when you, when you look at God's analogy or the, the metaphor of the Lord Jesus Christ as a lamb, the first thing that you're taken with, the first thing that is just so obvious that, is that of all of the, the animals to which God could have chosen to liken the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb, the lamb is the absolute simplest. I, and I want you to think, think about a lamb for just a minute. You, you look at a lamb, and you're taken with the fact that a, that a lamb has absolutely no agenda for itself. It has no plans of its own. Hey, what you doing there, Buckwheat? Well, you know, I think uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to you know, go over about three or four hills over there today, and I'm going to carve out a little... <laughs> they got no plans, no agenda. A lamb doesn't scheme. You know what? I, I got a dog. I've got a man's dog. I wish y'all could see it. It, it. it stands about this high, and it's got long white hair. Uh, the dog's name is uh, Prissy. Uh, you ought to see me in the park, man. You know, here's all these stud muffs. You know, hey, you know, they call him the Rottweiler. You know, the German Shepherd. Hey, yeah. Stuff. I'm like, Prissy! <laughs> you see, that's why I'm talking about it. It's a man's dog. You see, all these other guys got to get Dobermans and German Shepherds and Pit Bulls. They, you see, they're insecure in their manhood. <laughs> see, with me, you know, Prissy. And... My wife teases me a lot about this part of doghood. Um, ever since the dog was, was little, you know, if somebody was going to discipline this dog, it was going to be me, you know? And so the dog, you know, did the, the puppy thing and was just squirting all over the house and all that stuff, you know? And I'm not into that, you know? I don't want to walk into my house and be smelling dog, you know? And so I'm going to discipline this thing. And, and so when the dog did the thing outside, I, I rewarded the dog, you know. And you ought to hear my wife, she goes, you know, because to this day the dog gets a treat when it, you know, does its thing in the yard rather than in our house, you know. And, uh, you know, you ought to hear her. She's like, oh, my goodness. Oh, you did such a great thing. Oh, you went potty in the yard, you know. And <laughs> trying to make me feel like a royal jerk and... 
But the dog knows that I'm the treat guy. You know, I, I mean, if, the, if anybody else lets the dog in the house, the dog is like, where's the treat guy? Where's the treat guy? I mean, it's like, you know, <laughs> got to find me in the, in the house to, you know, to get the treat. And this dog's a schemer, man. I mean, I come in the house and the dog acts like it has not been out in 50 years, you know. You know, and so I'm like, you know, how long has it been since the dog's been out? Oh, she's just working you. She just came back in, you know, that, that kind of stuff's going on. You know what? Lambs don't scheme. They don't, they don't have that little thing that they're working. They're not manipulating the situation to help itself. Listen, a lamb is totally dependent upon somebody else. A lamb is a lamb of humility. It's an animal of simplicity. We've already mentioned this morning from Philippians chapter 2 that the Lord Jesus Christ, listen now, the Lord Jesus Christ left the glory that was His as co-equal with the Father, and he never lost that even in his humanness, but he lost the glory of that when he came to this earth. And listen, from his birth all the way to his ascension, he lived in simple dependence upon the Father, and he followed him at all times. And Jesus came to this planet. And he wanted to make sure that we didn't miss that point. I'm just afraid we missed it. And so I want to take the, a few minutes here real quick to just cruise you through John chapter 1. Now in John chapter 1, or the, the book of John, in John chapter 1, we talked about this earlier, verse 29, Jesus is presented in John's gospel as the Lamb. And now check this out. All the way through the rest of the book, God shows you why He's the Lamb. Jesus begins His ministry. And there were some things He wanted to make very clear about Himself. And there were some things He wanted to make very clear about His connection to the Father. And I want you to look in John chapter 5. And I want you to listen to the, the simplicity of the Lamb of God as He wants to make something to, very clear to all of us. He says in John chapter 5 and verse 19, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. Whoa, 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 what? He's God! But He's the Lamb of God that came for a purpose. And he came as a simple lamb. And he says, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. You know what Jesus was saying? He's saying, I'm not here to do my work. I am here to follow the Father's working. And drop down to verse 30, chapter 5. And listen to his simplicity as he says, verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. 
as I hear, and that's from the Father, as I hear, I judge. Jesus says, I, I, I'm here and I am God in human flesh, but I don't make any judgments. I follow the Father's judgment. And drop down to verse 6, or chapter 6, and verse 38. And once again, listen to the simplicity as he explains. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And now Jesus says, I came to follow the Father's will. And go to chapter 7 and look at verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And in that same vein, look over chapter 8 and verse 28. Then said Jesus unto them, When you lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And, and Jesus shows us here that He didn't come to believe and to teach what He wanted. He said, I follow the Father's doctrine. I follow the Father's teaching." And check out verse 42 here in chapter 8. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came forth from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. And we see here Jesus' simplicity as the lamb as he says, I follow the father's leading and turn over to chapter 12 in verse 49 where Jesus says, John 12, verse 49, Jesus says, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me. He gave me commandment, what I should say and what I should speak. In other words, I not only follow the Father's work and the Father's judgment and the Father's will and the Father's doctrine, teaching and leading, He says, I also follow the Father's instruction. And, and you, can, you can begin to see, you can begin to see the reason for the analogy. No plans, no agenda, no self-will, no self-promotion, no self-glorification. He came as the Lamb of God. He came as the simple lamb. And would you turn over to the book of 2 Corinthians for just a second? And let's ask ourselves this morning, as his lambs, as those that claim to be his followers, let's ask ourselves this morning if this characteristic that is true of the Lamb of God, let's ask ourselves if this characteristic is true of us. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and in verse 3, Paul said that the, the, the great fear that he had in his heart is that in some way, the same way that, that the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, his fear was that somehow our minds would be corrupted, look at the end of verse 3, from the simplicity 
that is in Christ. And oh, folks, listen, let's, 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 let's get our ears open this morning. Let's, let's learn from what God's trying to show us here. Now, I, I tried to, to walk you through the Gospel of John this morning and show you the simple life of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb. And now listen. Now that you have become a follower of Jesus Christ, and as verse 3 says, now that you've been placed in Christ, one of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ is bent on is simplifying your life. Now you need to be aware that on the other hand, the devil is bent on complicating your life. And I want to say to you this morning, you don't have to have a doctorate in theology to understand this very simple thing. Listen, you can tell a whole lot about your fellowship just by looking at your life and asking the very basic question, is my life simple? Or is my life complicated? And you know what? Laodiceans live extremely complicated lives. Quite unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, we have all kinds of plans. Oh, we are the lambs! We're followers, but we've got all kinds of plans. We've got all kinds of goals. We have all kinds of agendas that we try to keep hidden. We've got all kinds of situations that we're trying to manipulate. We've got all kinds of motives that we're trying to mask. We've got all kinds of positions that we're trying to protect. And life is just a, a complicated, jumbled, frustrating, chaotic mess. And you know what? If you want to know just how complicated our lives are, most of us, all we've got to do is just look at our finances. And it's a complicated mess. Because we had all kinds of plans and all kinds of agendas and all kinds of promotion of self that we wanted. And now our life is just totally complicated because of our finances. And you can also see how complicated it is by how hard it is for some of us to get to sleep at night. Some of us can see how complicated life is by our lack of joy. We can see how complicated life is by the stress that we're constantly feeling ourselves under. We can see how complicated our lives are by the broken relationships that we see all around us. But he... He was the simple lamb. Next, he was the shorn lamb. The shorn lamb. Isaiah 53, in verse 7 says, As a sheep before her shearers, in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, as a sheep before her shearers. And, and again, you look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ through the metaphor of a lamb. And you see that he, as the simple lamb, was willing to be shorn. First of all, he was willing to be shorn of his reputation. We saw it earlier in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7. He made himself of no reputation. Isaiah 53 and verse 3 says, 
He, he is despised and rejected of men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And again, he, he was the king of kings. And yet Philippians 2, 7 says, He took upon him the form of a servant. He was shorn of the glory of his kingliness. He was God and very God. And Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16 says that when he came to this planet, listen, it says in Hebrews 2 and verse 16 that he didn't just stoop to take on the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Or as Philippians 2, 7 says, he was made in the likeness of men. He was shorn. But not only was he willing to be shorn of his reputation, he was also willing to be shorn of his rights. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says, and we learned these when we were going through a walk with Christ to the, to the cross with, with, with Frank. What we've, we've seen already is that he was willing to be shorn of his rights, his, his right to wealth. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9 says, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. He was willing to be shorn of his right to honor, esteem, appreciation. Isaiah 53, 3, again, again, we esteemed him not. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that he was shorn of his right to purity. He became sin for us, listen to it, who knew no sin. And he became sin. He gave his right to purity. Next, Mark 10, and verse 45, says he came and was shorn of his right to be served. It says the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. If anyone ever deserved or had the right to be served, it was him. And he, he was shorn of that right and came and served us. And then, lastly, John chapter 10 and verse 17. He was shorn of his right to live. And the Bible says that he laid his life down. And check it out. In all of this, the Lord Jesus Christ never resisted. A lamb never does. He, he never, never one time ever came to the point, Hey, do you know who I am? You can't do this to me. I don't have to take this. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And oh, buddy, what a contrast when you begin to look at the Laodicean lambs who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because now listen, we don't want to do anything that might hinder how people might look at and feel about us. We want everyone in Laodicea, even though we're his lambs, 
Even though we're his followers, we want everyone to look at us and think we got it all together. We want everyone to know that you can still be cool and follow Jesus. We want everyone to think highly about us. And so what we do is we fight tenaciously to present ourselves in a way that we know that God knows is not true about us. We want everyone to think, as Revelation 3, 17 says, that we're rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And I'll tell you who we're a lot like. We're a lot like those in John 12, 43, who love the praise of men more than the praise of God. We'll follow the Lamb as long as it's working for us and it brings praise to us. We're like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2 where it says they put on a spiritual display that they may have glory of men. We're like those who try to sit in the seat of Moses, as Jesus said in Matthew 23, verses 2 to 5, who do all their works for to be seen of men. You see, the one thing you've got to understand about these lambs in Laodicea, who are the supposed followers of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got to understand that men are very important to Laodiceans. We want the praise of men. We want the glory of men. We want the attention of men. We want to be seen of men. Our reputation is something that we protect tenaciously from ever being shorn of. We want people to like us. We want people to feel good about us. And I mean, you know, God forbid that we would ever be, as a layout of seeing the Lamb, a follower of Jesus Christ. God forbid that we would ever be laughed at. God forbid that we would ever be made fun of. God forbid that people might think that we were a fanatic or that people would think that you're a jerk. God forbid that we would be despised and rejected of men. Do you know what I'm saying about us Laodiceans? We love what they give to us, and so we don't want what the Bible says Jesus Christ came as the Lamb of God and endured. And now he says, I've set an example for you to follow. And oh, buddy, when it comes to our rights, hey, rights is our name. Most of you know this, but the word Laodicean, it means the rights of the people. Check that out. God calls us Laodiceans. It's the one word characterization of what God looks at in this period of time as he looks at Christianity. And what he sees is that everybody's fighting tenaciously for their rights. And you know what? Somewhere along the way, y'all, I'm telling you, somewhere along the way, we got confused and started believing what the Constitution told us about being blessed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. Do you know that the Bible does not teach that? 
the day, you don't know that, right? The day that I received Jesus Christ as my Savior, I gave up any and all what I may have considered at one time rights. You believe that? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, I am no longer my own because I was bought with a price. So where are your rights? You see, now my, my whole existence, now that I've been bought, my whole existence is no longer me, my, mine. It's all about he, him, his. Galatians 2.20 says, I am, what? Crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3 says, For ye, speaking to believers, for ye are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Hey, where do we get off talking or thinking about our rights when God says we're crucified, we're dead, and we're not our own? And yet right now, some of us are hacked off at people because of what they said about us and how they treated us and how they snubbed us last week. And the reason that makes us so mad is they didn't show us the respect that we deserve. The respect that I am entitled to. And you see, we're, we're willing to be a follower of Jesus. And we really think that this is really pretty cool. That we get to be one of his lambs. Just as long as it means we don't have to be shorn. Just as long as I can still have my reputation. Everybody at school thinks I'm real cool even though I do know Jesus. And the culture really thinks that I'm your all right guy even though I do know Jesus. Well, what if they all just said, you know what? You are an idiot. You are just a jerk. How do you like being one of his lambs? You still follow? But not only was the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, the simple Lamb, and the shorn Lamb, number three, He was the silent Lamb. Isaiah 53, and verse 7 says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb or, or silent. So he openeth not his mouth. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 62 and 63, Jesus is before Caiaphas. And they bring the false accusers in to, to testify against him. And Caiaphas says in verse 62, Answerest thou nothing? And verse 63 says, But Jesus held his peace. In the next chapter, Matthew 27 and verse 12, 
The false accusations continue before Pilate now, and the verse says, And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And verse 13 says, Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And verse 14 says, And he answered him to never a word. Insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. And listen, you just see it over and over and over. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, never defended himself, he never explained himself. No smart answers. No sarcastic looks, which many of you parents and teachers know can be a whole lot louder than people screaming at you. No looks. No word. But, oh, buddy. Are we Laodicean lambs unlike the lamb we say that we are following? Because check it out. We're not even silent when someone makes an accusation against us. That is true. Someone makes an accusation against us. They said, you know what we begin to do? Start running the mouth. What do we do? Defending ourselves and rationalizing and justifying ourselves and if that's not what we do we, when they bring that accusation against us we retaliate with all the other things that we know that the other person is guilty of you'll hear us lay out of scenes say things like yeah laughing yeah, my problem's my mouth. I just have a hard time keeping my, my mouth shut sometimes. And there's, there's lots of followers of the Lamb that are like that. They just pop off with, with something that is just verbally hated. Now, I can just, I, I'll tell you this. That's not my problem. It's really not. You know what? My deal is, is this. If people, you know, they'll initiate some kind of verbal conflict. Now, I got a major problem with my mouth. Okay, it's just not that. But people will initiate some kind of verbal conflict with me. And you know what? When, when they initiate it, if they want to take the matter to here, I'll go right here with them. And if they want to take it to here, then who, well, come on with it. And if it's a here, then come on, let's go, man. But you see, I justify myself because I'm not an initiator. I'm just a reactor. James, however, hits the nail on the head in James chapter 3, verses 5 to 8. Listen, listen to it. He says the tongue is a little member, a little, little member of your body. But he says, it boasts great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue, he says, is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue 
can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. And we'll read that, and even after reading that, we'll, we'll chuckle and laugh and say, well, you know what James said, you just can't tame the tongue. <laughs> and we forget that Jesus gave us the reason that we can't tame it. Back in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, listen to it. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Our problem with our mouth and not being able to control our tongue is not a mouth or a tongue problem, y'all. It's a heart problem. I've got to run off my mouth in defense of myself and to justify myself and to redeem myself and to stand my ground against you because self is still seated on the throne of my heart. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Self is sitting on the throne where Jesus is supposed to be sitting. But Jesus was the silent lamb. And you see, the, the reason he was is that he was also the spotless lamb. Listen, Jesus wasn't silent before his accusers because he was the self-controlled lamb. He could keep silent because he was the spotless lamb. He, he could keep silent because there was nothing in his heart but love for the very people who were about to send him to his death. He wasn't sitting there as we were working through all of those places where he opened not his mouth. He wasn't sitting there biting his lip. He wasn't sitting there gritting his teeth. He wasn't sitting there taking deep breaths. He wasn't sitting there counting to ten. He wasn't sitting there thinking of all the stuff that he wanted to say, but because he was trying to present a certain image of himself, he just wouldn't say. You see, and that's as Laodiceans. Oh, buddy, when we're in the midst of the deal and we don't open our mouth, we walk away going, Woo! And we've had this great victory because we didn't say what we were thinking. You know what's wild? He wasn't thinking anything. He was spotless. There wasn't anything in his heart. No grudges. No bitterness. No ill feelings. No revenge. No resentment. No hatred. No anger. And because there wasn't anything in his heart, there wasn't anything in his mouth. And I mean, even after being falsely accused and 
and then being beaten unmercifully and have, being pierced in his hands and his feet with the nails and, and in his head with the crown of thorns and then lifted up on that cross to be hung before the whole world naked. What did he say? Father, forgive them. And he didn't say that so that the words would be immortalized in history. And so that we would think, oh, wasn't that just so cool? He said that because that was what was in his heart. He really wanted the Father to forgive him. Hebrews 9.13 says that the Lord Jesus Christ through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without spot to God when He shed His blood for us. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without, what? Spot. He was the spotless lamb. But oh, we lay out of scenes. Someone crosses us, buddy. Somebody violates our space. Somebody violates my territory. Somebody violates my rights. We're resentful, hateful, spiteful, angry, bitter, and vengeful on the inside. Because remember, we still like to be seen of men and have praise of men and glory of men, and we can't let any of that out on the outside because then we won't get the pat on the back from the people we want it from. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, and some of you need to listen, because somebody in this room's wronged you, and you're really act. And you've been justifying yourself all about it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7, Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer or allow yourselves to be defrauded? The Lord did. And you're one of his lambs, right? You're one of his followers. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See, Paul writes, see that none, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves, that's within the church, and to all men. And again, you've got to see, the issue here, folks, it's not self-control. It's not doing all kinds of stuff to appear to be spiritual. He's looking for spotless lambs in our hearts. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look, for such things. And in the context, the such things that we're to be looking for is the coming of the Lord and the end of the present earth and the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. 
So he says, looking for these things, Peter says, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ was the spotless lamb. So he was the simple lamb, the shorn lamb, the silent lamb, the spotless lamb, and one final one. He was the sacrificial lamb. And now listen real carefully. I appreciate the way you take notes, but now listen to this. He could have been the simple, shorn, silent, spotless lamb. But had he not offered himself as a sacrifice, do you understand that every single one of us would die in our sins and would spend eternity suffering in hell because that's what every single one of us deserved? And as long as he was a cute, simple, shorn, silent, spotless lamb, we were all dead in our sins and couldn't do anything about it. But he was the sacrificial lamb. He died. Ephesians 5, 2 says that Christ loved us and hath given himself for us as an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. Savor. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 says, But this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And two verses later, Hebrews 10, 14 says that by that one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Listen. In perfect fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Philippians 2.8 says, He became obedient unto death. And not just death. Even the death of the cross. And now check it out. Because Christ died. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1 says, have been made alive. His death brought us life. And you know what we do as Laodiceans? Oh man, we rejoice in our sacrificial lamb. And we, we love to sing about it and we thank God for it and, and we praise Him that that He died, that we might have life. But now, now listen. Do you realize that as one of His lambs, do you realize this morning that as one of His followers, His call on every one of our lives, do you know what it is that He's looking for? He's looking for all of us to return the favor. 
my attention span wasn't that long. What favor? <laughs> to die. So that he might live. You, you got it? He died so we might live. And he comes along and he says, now listen. You die. So that I can live through you. Say, well, that, that, that sounds real nice. Is, is that Bible? We'll, we'll close on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> we'll close on this and we'll start on this next time. But check this out. Second Corinthians chapter 4, would you look at verse 10? Always bearing about in the body, that's this fleshly earth suit that all of us are still living in. He says, we're always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. He gave his life and died so that we might have life. And you know what God keeps trying to do in our lives, y'all? To bring us into situations of life where we bear in this body the dying of the Lord Jesus. And the more of the dying of the Lord Jesus that you and I experience in this body... What Paul says, the result of it is, the more of his life that is lived through us. But you know what? Listen, listen. As Laodiceans, this whole thing of dying to self, we look at that and we think, oh, I wish I could be willing to do that, but man... I just don't want a life where I'm miserable. That's what Laodiceans think. And it's the biggest pile of hooey you ever stepped in in your life. The more we die, the more He lives in us. And you don't ever have to be afraid of His life in you. That's not a life of misery. That's the devil's scheme to keep us from it. His life in us is a life of joy. It's a life of rivers overflowing. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And we've got to get to the places, lay out a sins. Hello. We've got to get to the place to where we understand but the more we hang on to our life, the more we're losing it and the more miserable we are. And if we would just let him take the events in our lives, they're, they're, they're listed for you in verses 8 and 9 prior to this. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. 
persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. L listen, now, now, now I'm almost done. But would you look back at verse 8 again? The trouble that you have on every side, the perplexing situations of your life, the persecution that you're enduring, the being cast down that you're going through, do you understand what that is? It's the dying of the Lord Jesus. And He's bringing you through those situations that you are looking at and you're just so dead, burned, miserable. And you're missing it. He brought all that stuff in your life so you die so that he could live. Oh, Laodiceans. We're a weird bunch, aren't we? Man, I'd love, I'd love for us before he comes for us. Man, I'd love for us to hear him knocking and say, you know what? Come in, Lord Jesus. Come into our midst. Come into my life, not in the, the sense of salvation. Come live your life through me, and if that means death, okay. If it means trouble, if it means being brought through perplexing situations where I go through persecution and I'm cast down, I got it now. I understand. That's the dying that you were talking about. And what I want is I want you to live. So come in. Live through me. Lord, help us. We are, we are sick as Laodiceans. We know that, that our pride... Our, our, the fact that we're lukewarm, we realize that it's, it's an affront to you and, and it's sickening to you. And Lord, just continue to, to make it more and more sickening to us. Help us, Lord, to die and not be afraid of, of the cross, not be afraid of allowing your life to be lived through us. Oh God, would you turn the spiritual switch in our heart to help us to realize the joy of your life in us. With our heads bowed and Christians talking to God right now about you, there's some of you folks that are in this room this morning that have never become a child of God. You've never become one of His lambs, as it were. You're, you're not really a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, that begins with a birth. It begins with a death, but it begins with a birth. It, it, the death is to self. The death is, is, is you coming to the place to where you acknowledge there's nothing that you can do in and of yourself or through any church, or through any act of religiousness, there's nothing that you can do to be brought into a relationship with God. God, knowing that, became a man and took your sin, which separates you from Him. 
He took that on the cross, and all he's looking for is for you to come to the place to where you say, ah, I know I can't do anything. I realize you did the work, and because of that, I call on your name, and I invite you to come in to sit on the throne of my life. I desire to follow you. And it's that simple. To be born into God's family. And if you're here this morning and have never come to that place in your life, we want to offer an invitation to you. As our service is concluded here in just a second, our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room. And we're inviting you this morning that before you leave here, if you will come and just talk to one of these men and say, I'd like to talk to somebody. If you're a lady, we'll get you with a lady. If you're a man, we'll get you with a man. But I'd like to talk with somebody about what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm tired of living my life going my own way, and I want His way. And we offer that invitation to you, and we ask you if God's working in your heart this morning, please come. And Lord, I do pray that, that you would work in the hearts of, of these people this morning that don't know you. And I pray that this would be the day of their salvation. We ask in Jesus' name.